Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. For the next eight weeks, the Rewatchables will be covering eight films that are incredibly rewatchable despite having one major flaw. So far, we've covered the movie Higher Learning, and this Wednesday, Bill Simmons, Chris Ryan, and Ryan Russillo are talking about the 1985 wrestling classic Vision Quest. So make sure and check out the flawed Rewatchables on the Rewatchables feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me in the studio, the head of the El Cuco Super Pack, it's Andy Greenwald. First things first, <laughs> no outside money, plenty of outside boils. El Cuco is powered by small donors. <laughs> How many people get that? Uh, like, if you listened to Minute, let me check. Really? I got it right here. You time stamp this? 48 of, of Monday's podcast. 48? This is the funniest thing you've ever heard. Otherwise, you're like, what's going on with these guys? They've lost their fastball. I think that, you know, so this is a Thursday pod. Mm. We have a special Briar Patch themed Always. back half of the podcast for Always. today. But this might be otherwise the podcast where we finally, you know, we finally ad- admit some things, warts and all. You're, Chris is having a little uh, lower back pain today. I tweaked it. I just... It's a lower back impingement. I just, I just had to. My Australian brother Ben Simmons. I just had to eat a lunch on the uh, 101 freeway to get here. I feel like we probably should treat ourselves better. Yeah, people depend on us for the lucest of warm takes. But you know what? If you look around this world, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stresses. Yeah, and for us, it's Bob Iger stepping down as CEO of Disney. This is so. Bobby's here. Bobby's going to drop the Geiger counter, the Iger counter music. Not maybe one last time. It's good that Bobby is producing a podcast about Bob giving up his job to another Bob. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good look for Bobby. He's, he's sliding in. Play, it's like the, that's the that's the real like. It's not Harvard. It's being named Bob. That's really all it takes. Yeah, people trust a Bob. <laughs> um, let me tell you something. What's we, your What's your What are you gonna miss most about Bob Iger? <laughs> I mean. So just so people know, Bob Iger obviously stepping down as CEO, but is going to, at least for the foreseeable future, remain in charge of content at Disney. No, for the remainder of his contract. So 2021. Everyone thought he was going to then step down as CEO. Right. Uh, real life succession vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bob Chapek, who is in charge of parks, no wham scams, he's, he's, uh, he's taking over. He's taking the, over the mouse house. Uh-huh. And I don't think any other CEO maybe would warrant top billing on our podcast no. but we've been talking about him a lot we like to we like to laugh and joke he was recently a guest on the Bill uh, Simmons podcast Bill Simmons podcast yeah. and once you've achieved that feather in your cap I guess you're done that's it um, <laughs> you think Bill's like the undertaker <laughs> I think Bill was staring at him the whole time whispering the baby blues that's yeah. it um, I think the reason we're talking about it is that it is well the reason we're talking about it is because we have the cool music and you asked me what I would miss most about Bob Iger, and I hope everyone listened to the Bill Simmons podcast because they'll understand what, what I mean when I say what I will miss most about Bob Iger is the fact that his voice sounds like the inside of fancy cars feel. Oh, yeah. Like a, like a, a 1988 Chrysler. Like a rich Corinthian yeah. leather. Yeah. And you just kind of want to lose yourself in it, and you also want to either trust him or allow yourself to be purchased by him for, you know, $4 billion. He's going out on top. Uh, Truly. Launching... The Plus, um, you know, we're we're just not going to talk about last last Skywalker. Well, I think Rise the, of Skywalker. So, so the so the thinking was this: um, this guy was a legend here in in this town, but also for the way he transitioned a company that he had worked out for forty years into w- one of, if not the major media players of the century still to come, through very very canny and very savvy. Purchases. Mm-hmm. He went big game hunting all the time, whether it was Marvel, whether it was Pixar, um, Fox, um, Lucasfilm, and then launching, yeah, launching Disney Plus. I think the assumption was that he would just keep going. He had put off retirement. Yeah, he was 69 times. and he had extended his contract a couple of times. And his contract was extended till the end of next year. Um, and so while the initial reports were like, well, now that he successfully launched this streaming platform, mm-hmm. while he you know, turned the page 
on the first generation of Marvel and Avengers films and has turned, you know, ended the chapter of whatever this version of Star Wars is, it kind of makes sense. Sure. I got to say that this was, seemed totally bizarre. Yeah. You put on a, a crown of foil. I did. Like, this actually made me kind of get a, a little conspiracy-y. Um, only because it just seems so odd. It was mm-hmm. a, it was just a random Tuesday where it was, and it wasn't like officially announces Bob Chapek that is the heir apparent. This wasn't a Logan Roy press conference that he could then walk back. It wasn't he wasn't elevated to a COO position that previously hadn't existed that would have signaled to the street, mm-hmm. as they say, mm-hmm. that no, uh, the street did not like it. The street didn't like this because it was just like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. As of right now, and you read the New York Times story about this, you read the the trades, and when they talked to, or New York Magazine, when they reached out to senior talent agents or people who run other studios, and they were all like, I don't know who this man is. Oh, I really? do not know this man. Yeah. Um, Bob Chapek. Bob Chapek. Yeah. So immediately I was like, well, what, is there some shoe about to drop? Is there some story about to drop? Or is he about to cape up and be like, move over, Mike Bloomberg. There's right. room for the another yeah. middle of the road Rich guy. Right. The third, third way. So apparently none of that is true. Um, who can ever know the hearts of men, Chris? But yeah. It, but it's interesting and particularly interesting. Sorry to pivot it back to the, what we usually talk about here, which is that Iger, um, with all the necessary caveats, because this is the man who also, when he was head of ABC, rushed and then canceled Twin Peaks, had talent relationships and understood you know that side of the business. Sure. Well, the one knock on the new guy is he understands apparently with devastating intensity and focus the consumer fronting experience of this larger company and the parks that he used that he up until the other day was in charge of and also like the toys and all that but he hadn't done the relationships on the other side of the ball yeah it'll be very interesting to see i'm not so interested in in disney per se the parks or the the overall banner as much as I am the subsidiaries that are obviously the the cat, the, the sort of companies that we tend to talk about like, more on this pod. Like go.com? Yeah, and just like, wh- where is that going? You know what I mean? And Where's and, that been? Right. Uh, I'm I'm pretty shaken up by the fact that the Lizzie McGuire reboot's not making it to the blues, so yeah. not a great first step for no. Chapek. Rough seas he's j- setting out in. Sincerely, like, I do feel like at one point, on one hand, Star Wars with The Mandalorian and Marvel with Endgame and getting ready for Phase Four and Eternals and all these things that are coming and the fact that the the suite of shows are about to start on uh, Disney Plus this year that that's in a very good place. But on the other hand, you know, I think that there I don't know anything about this, but it seems strange that this comes in the aftermath of the Fox purchase. Um, and I, 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 you know, I I think that we'll probably never really know the full full he, story. But he seems like I mean, again, I. I read a few excerpts from from his book, his memoir from last year, and um, did listen to him on Bill's podcast. And I mean, he he seems like a he he seems like a relatively restless guy for someone who's worked at one company for longer than we've been alive. Sure. So you never know um, that maybe really is this, is it's as sim- maybe it's as simple as that. Um, the one thing that made me I don't know I don't know I don't know why I'm putting on like investor hat. I don't own Disney stock. I that's not what I'm about mm-hmm. in terms of my my opinion on this. But I was <laughs> going to say the one thing on go.com. The, <laughs> so so long. Just holding that hope. <laughs> Jim it's, Kramer just being like bye bye bye. It is a great URL. I mean there's no question about it. I that. mean it's one of the easiest URLs out there. And yeah. also when you're trying to go to Google, they'll be like what about go? Yeah, exactly. Autofill. Yeah. We're already done. <laughs> yeah. Ask Jeeves about that. Um just the one, the one thing in in JPEG's uh, CV that I found particularly noteworthy is that he is the guy who is credited with the Disney Vault system. Now, oh, okay, Chris, as a oh, uh, you're going to go Daddington on me. as a known childless fellow, uh-huh. you don't know about this. This is when they like make Cinderella available for a hot minute. Yeah, you know they, about this because this is before my my Daddington. This times. was always the illest shit ever to be. This was like Disney is the original supreme. They exactly, would, they would do a drop. And they would be like, come get your Beauty and the Beast. And, and it, it was like, those were expensive. VHS or DVD drops uh-huh. in like big, fancy but packaging. What the VHS is like 50 bucks? Yeah. They were crazy expensive. And then they'd be like, you have to buy it now because it's going back in yeah. the vault. Yeah. We control. What a boss move. The media. Um, JPEG. I know. And it worked. And it made them so, so, so much money. And it's funny now that he's inheriting the company now that they're, you know, in line with all media companies saying, 
here it is. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. Just just pay us a nominal fee and you can have all of it. Well, so I but do. Al- although to Chapex Credit and Legacy, uh, and I know, Chris, you've been monitoring the story closely. Frozen 2 is not yet on Disney Plus, but it is available for like a healthy $20. And it's like if you call up your Apple TV home screen, uh-huh. it is front and center. Is it? In a way that I, I'm I'm not going to name names, but let's say someone's children can see it <laughs> and say, oh, it's on the screen. Does that mean we can watch it? And you're like, no, no, no child. I am like, I am so on borrowed time. You're like I, in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. You're like pretending like can, that doesn't exist. Can you see the beads of sweat <laughs> popping on my forehead yeah. as I explain to my children? It's just advertising that it's coming soon. It's like Total Recall when that guy has like the one sweat. (laughs) They are not going to buy this much longer. Meaning I'm going to have to buy it. I will say for, I I can't do any justice that other people haven't already done to what Iger's legacy is or whatever as the head of Disney. I will say that when I was like in my teens and 20s, Disney was, that's where you can ride Humunga Cowabunga. (laughs) Like that's where Typhoon Lagoon is. That's Mm -hmm. where the Walter Cronkite golf ball. It's like, it was, to, to explain so to somebody... the big thing at Epcot? What's that? Like the Walter yeah. Cronkite narrated ride inside the Epcot ball? Yeah, I can't remember what it's called. Me either. Um, to explain to someone now what kind of mindshare Disney had in 1994 mm-hmm. is impossible. Mm-hmm. To, the idea that Disney is now an everyday part of people's lives, whether they like it or not, and it owns ABC, and it owns ESPN, and it owns Disney Plus, and I guess MLB Advanced Media, you know, all these things. Go.com. And Go.com, one of the great websites that they own. It's, it's, it's inconceivable to try to explain that to somebody. Like 1994, where they're like, yeah, sure, parks and kids movies. And, and to also try to tie it into the larger cultural conversation, it, it brilliantly um, mimicked the shift in culture as a whole, which is to say that there were certain things that felt like the provenance of kids or young people that over the last 20 years have just become culture, Mm -hmm. whether they are comic books or franchise entertainment or whatever you want to call the world we're living in. um, That was in one box in the 90s, much like Disney was. I think you're totally right. It was a kid's thing. It was an essential part of childhood. Sure. But then you left it behind. For sure. We do not do that anymore. It is now all of the things. And... It's it's pretty wild. I mean, it and it what's most noteworthy about it is that this was the oldest of old media companies, you know, and the thought that in this world of whatever of disruption or of these, you know, Netflix and Amazon and these companies who are more part of the modern way of life, but also the modern narrative of whether it's, you know, uh, the the one idea, the disruptive idea, blah, 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 that this incredibly not just old school company, but not just old company, but literally the oldest school company, the company that made movies, you know, people wouldn't, people didn't want to bring their projects to the Walt Disney studio to make films in the nineties because you couldn't swear or you couldn't smoke cigarette. Like they were just what they were. Yeah. And now they are everything. It's pretty amazing. No, it is. It is. It is. You know, you mentioned a couple of the other streaming networks that have, uh, that have, we've been talking about for a long time, and Disney Plus we've had a lot of fun with, but we've also talked seriously about The Mandalorian. And um, that brings me to what I wanted to talk about in the second part of our conversation yeah. before we bring Eva on and talk about Briar Patch Episode 3. So anybody who's listening to this podcast for the last year or so knows that Andy was making a television show and time was tight, so he could watch something here or something there, but not everything all of the time. And I have strived to do my best to watch as much as possible. It's amazing. And if I, it's funny, like the the one thing I get if like I ever meet somebody out in public and they're, you know, they come up and say they like the pot or something, they're like, I just can't, how do you watch everything? I don't think we can step on it, but Chris and I were guests on another podcast. Oh yeah. Uh, with some friends of uh, this podcast. And I think it's dropping, I think it's dropping tomorrow. Whenever the Friday. Joe Rogan pod drops, that's when. But, <laughs> but. Open your fucking these mind. These guys who will be not be strangers to anyone when the mics were on and I think when the mics were off, they were just like, how do you live your life, Chris? Right. How do you do this? Well, let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. I feel like this week, there, I, I feel like I had a personal tipping point and okay. I want to tell you what I'm talking about. So in the past couple of weeks, Andy and I have been mostly talking about Outsider, talked about High Fidelity. Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul. Here are the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks on mm-hmm. quote unquote TV. 
Mythic Quest Ravens Banquet. Oh, I'd like to watch which that. Which is the Rob McElhoney show. It is the best show that Apple has released. Mm-hmm. They put it up all at once. You watched it? Delightful. Yeah. Wow. My wife and I watched it. It what? was awesome. We haven't talked about it on this podcast. Came we haven't talked about it in our lives. Right. High Fidelity and Outsider we talked about. We talked a little bit about Curb. A Curb comes on 45 minutes every, every week. And I will say, being the clearly the oldest of the two of us in a lot of ways, including my watching, Curb has been a delightful free-range graze in my household. Mm. The other night, one, instead of being paralyzed by all the choices, just watch Curb. Like, let's just watch this week. Not this week's. Four weeks ago's Curb. Because yeah. I think we're up to episode three or four. Yeah. Hey, by the way, just quick side note. Kudos, kudos, kudos to the people of HBO, to Larry David Industries for putting a still image of John Hamm in the square that's just, on HBO you Go. keep your wife locked in. Every time. Like, do you want to watch Curb? And she goes, eh. Then there's a pause and she says, is John Hamm in this episode? And I say, no way of knowing. And so far through, he hasn't appeared yet, right? No. It's brilliant. It's great. They should do that for all shows. Just put John Hamm in the, in the thumbnail. Here, here's my recipe for success on TV. You ready? Uh-huh. Ready? Put on the tinfoil hat. You take a little John Hamm. You put him at the beginning of the episode. And what do you do with the episode? You put it on after pro wrestling. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and maybe have Baby Yoda make a cameo? Whatever. Yeah. I've named the two most important things to success, and I am not kidding. Let me get back to my bit. Yeah. Mythic Quest Ravens Banquet, High Fidelity Outsider Curb, Avenue 5 if you're sticking with it, Narcos Mexico Season 2, Better Call Saul, all of the stuff that we've talked about on the pod, more or less, minus Mythic Quest. Here's stuff that we have not talked about Mm. that in any other world we probably would. Hunters on Amazon, Mm -hmm. Netflix is gentified, which is getting raves. Hentified. Hentified. Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, NBC's effort at making a hipster comedy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, The War of the Worlds, that's, I think, the British version of it. Epics, right? Yeah, and Epics. That's what's on now, Mm -hmm. and I'm missing half of it. Mm -hmm. Here's what's coming in the next few weeks. Weeks. Uh Devs, Alex Garland's FX show that we cannot wait for. On Hulu. Yes. Zero, zero, zero. Uh, It's an international cocaine epic from uh, Stefano Solima, who directed Sicario, David Soldado, and it's based on a Roberto Saviano book. He did Gomorra. It stars Andrea Riseborough and Dane DeHaan. It is coming out in eight days. You had me at international cocaine epic. It's fucking lit. I have not seen a single mention of this show. Right. It is so, it's really good. It's very violent. FYI. Yeah. So, 000, Dispatches from Elsewhere, Jason Siegel's AMC show. Breeders, a Martin Freeman comedy on FX. Dave, another FX comedy with Lil Dicky. Amazing stories on Apple TV+. Plus. Did you know there's a show called Flack, which is on a network called Pop, and it's about a PR crisis management team, and it stars Anna Paquin, Martha Plimpton, and Daniel Day Kim, and it is in its second season? I did know that. I did not know that. Black Monday is coming back. Westworld is coming back. And that is just the two first weeks of March. Yeah. After that, Plot Against America, David Simon's adaptation of the Philip Roth novel. Right. Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu with Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington. And all the usual wave of stand-ups, documentaries, and reality shows that usually fall outside of what our What about curb. conversations with, I'm mean, not conversations with friends. What about normal people? You talking normie peeps? Listen. I don't even know when normal people is coming this on. This podcast. Are we, a, are we, is this Rooney Hive now? We are committed to the extended Rooneyverse. The Sally Rooneyverse is the only IP I'm interested in going forward. My point is, this would be, if I gave you that list of shows yeah. five years ago, six mm-hmm. years ago, and I was like, this is what's coming out for the rest of the year. Yeah. You would be like, that's a healthy lineup. And that is a busy schedule for your boy, young TV critic. And you add in live sports, and you add in a life, and you add in whatever else you've got Maybe going on. Maybe you want to watch a movie on Criterion. Whatever. That's fucking crazy. Like, I, I think that, like, as the landscape has been changing over the years, I've been kind of like riding the wave a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that I was on a tidal wave. Like, I was kind of like, yeah, sure, it's a lot of TV, but I'm, I'm kind of good at picking and choosing and realizing what yeah. I do and don't want to watch. And even still, in the Facebook watch group, the watch Facebook group and everywhere else, like, you can find people being like, how the fuck are you guys not talking about this? How are you guys not talking about this? And they're right. Like, there was a show called Chernobyl, apparently. You're talking the nodes? <laughs> um, oh, look. I, do you feel like, even from your outsider's outsider perspective, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Bear mask and all. Yeah. Doesn't it feel, this feels wild. Like, I feel no. like I'm grabbing um, my armrests on a plane that's going down. Maybe not going down. Maybe it's going up. Who Listen. knows? Who can say? In a zero G kind of spin, yeah. you don't know. You, but you, my point you'd be is, calm about it. Yeah. My point is, A, I'd be calm. And B, we haven't even gotten to HBO Max yet. 
we haven't gotten to the Peacock. Mm-hmm. Disney Plus does not have anything currently on that you and I would watch. Mm-hmm. This is absurd. This is an absurd amount of TV to be watching. And you didn't even mention this Japanese English show Giri Haji, which I, I checked out. And I didn't watching. mention that. I didn't mention that Ozark's coming back. Yeah, I mean, it's a bloodbath. It is a bloodbath, and I think that, and I say that as a creator and as a critic, and just as a just a guy with a microphone sitting across from another guy with a microphone. <laughs> That's right. Um, we spent a lot of years, probably too many years, um, reiterating the same argument. Basically saying and mourning the loss of what we like to call consensus shows, how much we enjoy water cooler podcasts, shows. We try giving things the belt. Yeah. And this feeling that was obviously to our advantage as podcasters. And then, you know, also the writing that we did, that everyone's watching the same thing, or at least there was that feeling of shared experience and momentum. And we missed that. But I think the B side to that conversation was often, well, at least everyone has something to watch that all of these other things that we are not covering with the same ardor or shared sense of community as we had in the past, that all of those things were being watched, uh, maybe just by smaller, passionate groups. And I no longer know if that's the case. Um, the idea of launching a show, and, and, and I'll speak plainly about my own experience too, but speak to it. it is essentially impossible. And I think that we are seeing the, we're seeing the real-time collision of two, two um, movements that don't necessarily sync up. One, as we've talked about before, is that we are in an arms race for content libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, that all of these providers need to become uh, unmissable. And one of the ways you become unmissable is having the stuff that people want to watch and being the only place to watch it. And Disney has a huge advantage because it is. And HBO has an advantage because it has been. Um, Netflix has spent the last few years spending billions of dollars to become that mm-hmm. because Disney and other places are pulling their content, right? So the whole goal of a lot of these companies' production schedules is really not about the immediate hit. They're not about how many people watch it the night it premieres. They're about having it. I would argue... For the longer term. And, and, and yet, we live in both, A, a culture that demands and feeds off of the new and wants opening box office, opening night, premiere, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, man, unbox it. Um, but also, you know, as I've learned recently existing making a show for a uh, platform agnostic bingey type of audience but making it for a place that for you know perfectly good reasons exists in the older economy that is you know there still has to be ratings there still has to be commercials one of these things doesn't necessarily sync up with the other and i feel like this moment that you're describing this is where we're at i think that I would be really curious to know whether or not the people who are working at these streaming services view things the same way you do. Obviously, they do in so, to some respect mm-hmm. where they're building and accruing a huge library of stuff. The library of stuff to me, the attraction to catching up on Breaking Bad seasons seven years ago or watching Friday Night Lights in that fashion or catch, you know, watching um, even three years ago or four years ago or whatever it really was that people really started to watch Friends on Netflix, it felt like a different time. It felt like, I don't even know how you could make a library play when this much new stuff is coming out on a week-to-week basis. It seems impossible. Like, how how do you even say, this is what we have in our library? Aside from algorithmically right. serving it up to people who are just looking at their home screens at, at, I, at the end of a night or the beginning of a night. I don't know how, if you're an engaged consumer of television, and you're constantly being told... Guys, get ready for devs. Guys, by the way, Better Call Saul is incredible. Mm-hmm. Guys, by the way, Westworld's coming back, so you're going to have to spend all this time on Reddit to understand that. And also, like, if you want to laugh, here are five shows to laugh at. But, you know, there's you have to watch all five hours of it because I don't want to spoil what happens in episode seven of High Fidelity. I mean, like, this kind of, like, high-octane spread offense TV that we're seeing yeah. does not play well when you're like, you know, if you happen to have 10 hours, <laughs> I just think you should catch up on this epic show that you yeah. may have missed. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's that... You, you, are, you are absolutely right. And I think contradicting what I'm saying in a very smart way, that basically th- that flash is a lot, is one of the few things companies have yeah. to try to get you and hook you and hold you. And then mm-hmm. maybe the library is what holds you. I was thinking of it from, you know, it's piggybacking on our Disney conversation. I mean, the incredible swagger that Disney has to enter into this crowded marketplace with Disney Plus at such a low price point yeah. is solely based on the fact that they have three legacy things that 
for Simpsons now too, that people just want access to. Mm -hmm. People want Marvel movies. They want Star Wars movies. And as I've said many times, if you have children under a certain age, you got to have these movies. Mm -hmm. You just have to be able to show them to your children, certainly on plane rides. So that's a huge advantage that other companies don't. And so they need the, the newer, the sexier thing. It's overwhelming. And I think it, even from, you know, just talking to people, talking to executives, talking to um, actors, certainly, they say two things. One, they are whiplashed how fast this changed, mm -hmm. that the world is different than it was two years ago um, in terms of television and what it means to work in and be a part of it. The other thing is just more than ever, I'm hearing people repeat something that actors said to me when we were making the pilot of Briar Patch, you know, which is this is this is the only part that matters. This is the only part that you can control. Is whether or not you could do good work. Do good work and enjoy this yeah. experience yeah. because you cannot control who's ever going to watch anything. And that's always been true. That's not groundbreaking, but taking holding that attitude when you're in the C-suites of these companies, I think, is not necessarily the same thing. Well, I also wonder whether or not, and it's impossible, I mean, I know it's not possible to study something like this or to quantify something like this, but I wonder what the wealth of choices does to our perception of the things that we actually do watch. Like whether the actual mm -hmm. huge amount of volume of TV to watch changes how you react to watching some any given thing because you are also kind of like, I have so much more I have to hit. Mm -hmm. So I, I get that feeling all the time when I'm watching something and I'm like, would my time be better spent watching something else because everything feels like a B? I also wonder if that narrative as a great, I mean, yeah. helps um, the star-driven content more, which is to say lost in that avalanche of shows that you mentioned was Little Fires Everywhere. Yeah which is an adaptation of a best-selling book, critically acclaimed book. Um, Starring two hugely recognizable stars. Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon. And that means the show's going to be covered. It doesn't mean it's good. I have no reason to think it's not. It doesn't mean that it will be well, highly viewed. But it does mean that it will be covered. And perception really matters when it comes to streaming content because the numbers aren't released the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, Hulu can say, this is our most watched thing on Tuesdays and Thursdays since the fifth season of Mindy Project, and that's why Age adjusted this. They can say whatever they want sure. with their numbers. Um, and they probably view things still a little bit differently. And one of the values for them is having Reese Witherspoon with the little Hulu label under her on posters all over Hollywood. So I wonder if that prejudices... Uh, executives and streamers and services in the direction that they were already heading in, which is basically TV is becoming movies and that it's like blockbuster star-driven stuff. Even though I don't actually know, I mean, Stranger Things was not star-driven and Stranger Things is by any metric legitimately a hit. Sure, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I... It, it it was also when I was reading this sort of synopsis, I was telling Fennessy yesterday actually about zero 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 and he's like, What a it's like that's like the Chris Ryan fun bag. Like you just like oh mm -hmm. by the way, Mogwai does the score to that show. There it is. See what I'm saying? And I was like, even I am having a hard time like like carving out the appropriate reaction to mm -hmm. that to that news that this show is coming. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like this is something that we would have gotten hyped about and then talked about. And I, I know that we're going to be scrambling to talk about it. And I feel like sometimes we would be like, oh, you know, the podcast is not real life. But I feel like it's starting to become, it's starting to feel a little bit more like real life for more people. Yeah. Where it's like the sheer volume of choice, the amount of hours out there to watch, if you do choose to engage with it, is it, it's harder and harder to find. Well, you could pick your spots, but it's just harder and harder to find the communal like relationship that people want from their television shows. The Outsider, I think, is deserving of the attention we're giving it. Also, we're having a great time talking about it. But I do think that, strangely, the 10 p.m. slot on HBO on Sundays is still... Sure. That's, that's still the Iron Throne in terms of they are separated from the scrum of, you know, daily, daily ratings or overnight ratings, all that. But um, they are still 
the weekly, it's stately, it's a little classy, it's a little yeah. old-fashioned. I think that's still the spot. And, it, and obviously, we, we tend to cover those shows. And do we cover them because of the way they feel and the way they're promoted and the time slot they're in? Sure. Partially. But I also think that that just is, is – is, they're managing that brand pretty well. Yeah, in the same way that I think that a lot of things that show up on the Netflix homepage, people are like, I'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, lo- the last thing he wanted came out this week, which mm-hmm. has not gotten good reviews at all. No, that, that's a the D. Rees movie starring yeah. Ben Affleck and Anne, ha- and Anne Hathaway. Based on a Joan Didion novel, which I like quite a bit. I'm definitely going to check it out because the barrier to entry is literally click play. But uh, I think that you can try out a lot of stuff on Netflix. I think you expect the thing that's on Sunday Night on HBO to be good. Yeah, you come into it with that still matters, yeah. right? I was like, if you guys put, if you're putting Outsider on at this time, on this night, I, I think you think it's good. So I want to check it out. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's true. That, that is, there is still some role for old-fashioned tastemakers, not just us, but specifically like we've trusted people in that role in the past. Of all the stuff that I mentioned, mm-hmm. what do you think you're most excited about? Devs? Well, normal people. Normal people. On Hulu. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think devs. I mean, it's Alex Garland is great. We've never seen him work on TV before. The cast is exciting. The artwork is beautiful. Um, it just seems it just seems really interesting in yeah. a way that, that that could prove to be prove to be exciting. You meant it, it's funny. I mean, that's an FX show, and FX we've talked about in the last few weeks how this Hulu deal is so much bigger than I think we realized at the time because it allows John Landgraf and Nick Grad and Eric Schreier and that and Gina Bailey and all the really talented programmers and tastemakers there to break free of the bonds of trying to break through on basic cable. Yeah. Could Atlanta happen today? I mean, I don't know. It it, it on one level I feel like yes because it's an interesting example because that show is so unquestionably the best thing on TV in the last few years. It is so grab you by the throat good mm-hmm. and excite and thrilling and, the, and you know, it it did and the star making. It did the best thing the yeah. TV does, which is not put stars into a small box, it makes stars out of the box. Um and, you know, couldn't be better timed for the moment and what people are interested in seeing and what people haven't seen. But at the same time, there is something. It's just like, yes, Atlanta's coming and there's cool billboards and good buzz, but it's Tuesdays at 8.30 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I wonder. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. If we have Nick back or if we ever get yeah. John on the pod, like, we'd have to ask him about that. I would say as we... I feel like this entire segment was just a pre-apology for how I'm going to miss more things. No, but you're no. going to watch devs. You're gonna I'm going to watch some stuff. I'm going to make you watch devs. And, um, then, and then when normal people happens, there will be no more awkward podcast than two middle-aged men talking about the sexual awakening of young Irish people. <laughs> the the <laughs> accents so are going to be out of control for me. So just fucking prepare. I'm not apologizing. No. If Saoirse Ronan and Bono wind up populating this podcast for a month, deal with it. I've earned it. I think it's fair. Let's talk to you. Can I say before we get into, um, you just set this up because we had, we are continuing to talk about Briar Patch episode by episode as we go through the season. Um, As everyone knows, uh, we are no longer a Thursday night show. We are a Monday night show. And let me just take a moment to personally thank Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon, (laughs) Linda McMahon, (laughs) the entire McMahon family, uh, Mr. Savage, Mr. Randy, the macho man, Savage, Mr. Flair. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Dog, Mr. Junkyard Dog. I don't know any other wrestlers. John Cena was a wrestler. Yes. The Rock was a wrestler. Yeah. These people are my blood brothers now. Yeah. I love them. I love, <laughs> I legitimately love wrestling fans. Um, thank you for watching Prior Patch at 11 p.m. because you did. And I'm very happy. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's kind of amazing because I think everyone who's listened to this podcast really knows and feels in their bones my longtime love of the art form and appreciation for it. Um, so it's, it's kismet that we ended up here. I'm truly grateful. It's actually, it's been a great thing for everyone. And I'm excited for people to see episode four, Monday night at 11, and then on demand thereafter. But, um, but this week's about 103. And um, the great and brilliant and wonderful Eva Anderson, who's a co-executive producer and my number two in the writer's room, uh, wrote this episode. Yeah, it was a cool conversation about what, how writer, writer's rooms work, basically. Yeah, and, I mean, hopefully they do. I guess we'll find that's crossed. How's that for a cliffhanger? Uh, we'll, we'll be right back with our conversation with Eva Anderson. Thanks for listening. Okay, now we're awkwardly transitioning into <laughs> my favorite part of the podcast at the moment, which is when we talk about my TV show, Briar Patch. And uh, we are going to talk about episode 103, which aired uh, linearly Monday night. Is that a word? Linearly? Yeah. yeah, linear. I mean, linear is the word, yeah. my guy. It's the word I live and die by. Uh, episode 103, 
terrible, shocking things. It used to be called terrible, awful. It was called awful, shocking things. Terrible, awful, shocking things. We lost one of the words. Yes. Who did you lose it to? Well, because there apparently, one of, this is one of the things you learn is that there's a character limit no. on titles. So episode six of the show has always been called The Most Sinful Motherfucker Alive, uh-huh. which is a title that I love. And then like two weeks before New Year's, I was told it wasn't the cursing that was the problem. It was that it was too many characters to fit. Yeah, but Friends on, is like, already throwing away all those characters with just the one about. Yes. Well, oh they're limited because it has to fit in a certain. So, that, so yeah, so this is, this is how difficult my life is. Anyway, <laughs> so to talk about this episode, I'm so happy that we are joined by the writer of the episode, co-executive producer of the show, a person whom I can't live without unless she totally drags me over the next 20 minutes, in which case I will revisit. <laughs> Podcast superstar Eva Anderson. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks so much for joining oh us. Oh, my God. So happy to be here. Um, Chris, it- do you know, before we get started, you know Eva is like a podcast shark. Like, she she is like Woody Harrelson and White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> she shows up on podcasts and dominates them. I'm the first ever Doughboys guest. No way. But very famously. Shout out to Samer Esmail, who... Is probably listening. Sam's brother, Samer, is a devoted fan of Eva Anderson. Okay. And all of her podcast He's got the Google alert. When he found out that she was going to be writing on Briarpatch, that was the most excited I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that Andy's talked about for episode three a lot is the, not, I wouldn't say breath of fresh air, but like the way that everything changed when there were writers involved, where the writer's room opened and he started to be able to break down the story with other people and talk about the story with other people. Can you just tell us a little bit off the top, like how you got involved with the show and, you know, and just like the origin story? Oh, yeah, origin story. It's actually kind of pretty funny. I wrote on You're the Worst for four seasons. And then I made the transition to being an hour-long writer. And so— Which is not done often, by the way. The people are generally categorized as half-hour or hour comedy or drama. Okay. But I wanted to be able to do both. And so I I spent a year trying to uh, writing a new thing and and moving over. And I worked in a couple shows last year. Um, Yeah, it was last year. The year before last Mm -hmm. year was kind of my transition year. But uh, I found out that Andy was trying to meet with me for the show, and I'd never met Andy before, and I'd never read any Ross Thomas. But I have a very soft spot in my heart for Andy because the first season of You're the Worst, it kind of landed a little soft, and we were getting kind of weird reviews, and it was a show people nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. And the, really the one champion was Andy Greenwald, this guy, oh, wow. Andy Greenwald. Mm-hmm. And so— Everyone thought I was going to get punished for my reviews, but look— <laughs> I was rewarded. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I, I know who this man is. He saved my job. Like, I literally thought about it, like, him That's as so awesome, guardian actually, angel. Though. So I was like, I'll definitely meet him. I just want to meet him. It was very nice. It, it was also in keeping with the great demeanor that psychologically works on me very well that Eva has, that at the meeting, she did not necessarily say she wanted to work on the show or like the pilot. I think that came out later. She basically said, I took the meeting so I could say thank you well, <laughs> for your reviews. So funny. Yeah. Uh, so that was cool. And yeah, and you interviewed Stephen Falk, uh, brilliant writer, awesome dude, um, and a bunch of stuff. So anyway, that yeah, your, your championing of, uh, of one of my early jobs was uh, very helpful to me, but, <laughs> um, and I appreciated it. And I, from my perspective, when we were forming the writer's room, the pilot was obviously written and shot and picked up. And then I had written a draft of the second episode. But last December, it was time to put together a writer's room. And I was told for good reason that I would need a, this is such a gross industry term, but a strong number two. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, basically, I needed someone who knew how to do this, mm-hmm. had done it before, could run the room if I was pulled out of it for any reason, um, but also someone whose taste I respected and whose writing I liked. So you went straight to Dick Wolf. I went straight to Dick Wolf, <laughs> and I look. I asked for you know he calls them his puppies. Yeah, like anyone who's who's worked in the Wolf Verse, <laughs> struck out. Did get Brian Garrity from the, the Greater nice. Wolf Verse. Oh, for sure. And then Eva's name was on the list as someone who because it's also someone the studio will accept in that position. Sure. And because of you're the worst, I was very excited to meet with her. That's awesome. So you sort of spent a year kind of like developing your chops and thinking about things more in terms of an hour, more dramatically. What was it about Briar Patch and the material that you felt like was a good match for you? Well, Andy knows this. Uh, So I didn't know Ross Thomas, but I'm from like a very noir-y family. Um, My brother is named Dashiell after Dashiell Hammett. And we had like eight ferrets all named after the characters from Maltese Falcon growing up. (laughs) So I, I definitely grew up like reading a lot of 40s, 30s and 40s noir. Yeah. But not a ton of like the later stuff. Um like Charles Williford is kind of where I end which mm-hmm. he's like 70s so uh, but so Ross Thomas was like a, a, a blank spot for me but I definitely recognized the language and the style and I found it very like comforting and nice I also grew up in the town where they filmed Twin Peaks oh so wow those two things together so hired <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but but also I really wanted someone who was funny 
and who could write jokes mm. because yeah. that was going to be a very important part of the show. Yeah. And before even uh, You're the Worst, I, I was a writer on Comedy Bang Bang. So that was oh, like okay. my first wow. gig was just straight up like jokes. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're coming in and Andy is already, the pilot's done by now. Oh, yeah. the pilot's done. Yeah. I, I was able to watch the pilot, which was super helpful too, just to, to gauge like tone, to see the actors and to see like what is what Andy's vision really was. Because it's so different from what's on the page. You know, you can read a million scripts and not totally get, once I saw it with the music and the actors. And sure. I was like, oh. Yes, I get this. And then for you, Andy, like, what was the, like, can you give me an example of something when, like, this stops being, like, the thing that's on your computer? Yeah. And then you shoot the pilot and you're yeah. kind of, like, largely responsible for what happens in the pilot. What happens when you start getting input from other people? What happens when somebody says, hey, what if this person says this or does this? Uh, and I, also, I, I just ignore them. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and bulldoze my way through. Sure. Um, Classic wolf. Yeah. That's, <laughs> he's the leader of the pack. Um well, that was what I was looking forward to most, you know, honestly, because I wanted to, I mean, I, I say this a lot, but it's not disingenuous. Like I, I writing, whether it was writing books or writing, you know, reviews for Grandland, it's very lonely and you're alone with it. And so I really wanted other voices in the room and I wanted people with different perspectives and I wanted people who had a different way into the material. Mm -hmm. And as we put the room together, that was one of the things that was most important, but also most exciting about it. You know, we had we had one writer who loves crime procedurals and came at it. Yeah. The great Haley Harris. Harris, who came at it, who, you know, who'd worked with Damon Lindelof on The Leftovers, mm -hmm. but l purely loved crime procedurals and those type, types of shows. And I wanted to be do justice to, the, to that part, which I felt would be hard for me. Sure. Um, we, you know, uh, Waning Yu, who wrote next week's episode, was really dialed in from the beginning on the emotional storyline. And she has a sister who she who she shares a birthday with and all these other weird details that were similar to the show. Mm -hmm. So looking for that kind of diversity was important yeah. also. But then the big thing was, and this is something I asked Eva about when she had a please don't freak out lunch with me. I was freaking out. She was fine, as is often the case. On the day the show premiered, I, I did ask her, like, when we met. We met once at Universal, and then we got coffee a few weeks after that. She knew, in a way that I didn't, the amount of like the emotional roller coaster that she would be riding whether she wanted to or not because of working with me. Sure. Or the, I mean, and I think charitably, uh, the absolutely crucial to the success of the show, Leila Archuleta is sitting here watching <laughs> and she knows as well. Uh, you know, it is an emotional roller coaster with me, but I think it, anyone, anyone, <laughs> anyone in the position going through it for the first time needs someone who can roll with yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think and that so, there's like a, there's not like a version of showrunner who just doesn't, Who's not no, but there's just going to be a lot of there. stuff. And so she did know, like, that's something that I didn't know to ask when we first met. But uh -huh. she knew, you knew that stuff was going to, there were going to be ups and downs. Oh, yeah. And you'd have to ride with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, making a show is hard. Making things is hard. Reviewers. <laughs> did you know that when you started reviewing things, that making them is very difficult? <laughs> As it turns out, I can confirm this. <laughs> it is, it is, it is really hard. But, but the other thing is that, and, and Eva can speak to this in terms of the way, the way that we ran the room, like, She's been in more rooms than I've been and had definitely more lived experience with it. But I went in with this idea that, that we didn't have to have any difficult assholes, that right. we didn't have to work till midnight, that we oh, could yeah. be decent people and get along, have a good time, and still do the work. And she bought and said that we could. You believed that we could do that for in the sure. beginning. And we did. You know, we broke we had, we broke at 5 p.m. We did our work, and everybody's still on good terms. And, and that it was, was a great room of people. Everyone came with a really strong perspective. Everyone was really smart. There were no jerks. Like, you picked a really awesome writer's room, just so, top to bottom. I think we've discussed this before on the podcast, maybe during production, but, like, I think you were obviously, like, in and out on the pod back then. Mm -hmm. But, like, for people who maybe have missed that description, can you guys go through, like, the average day when you were in the writing process? Yeah. Well, it, it varies by day because uh, you spend a lot of time at the beginning of a season breaking the season. You have to, you know, and, and what was awesome about this was that we had a book. Mm -hmm. So we actually knew what was kind of, we kind of knew the ending. And we also knew some like major events that sure. would happen over the course of the season. And he like, also like came in. the case in, of episode three, we knew there was a party at Jake's house. Yeah. Right. Episode three is actually, I'll just side note was really exciting for me because uh, to write because uh, most of it's from the book. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize. Actually, Andy and I went back through it, and I think except for episode six, every single episode mm -hmm. has something major from the book. At least in one it. thing. Yeah, okay. at least one thing. Episode six is its own beast, and uh, it just it came like came from the room, came from Andy and uh, from Reina who wrote it. But um, but otherwise, everything at least has like a major scene or something. But three is like mostly the book, and has a couple of uh, my favorite parts of the book in it. Um, 
have is this spoiler? This is going to go yeah. up after people the have seen it. people yeah. have seen it. So yeah, yeah. The Harold Snow uh, interrogation is my favorite part of the book. Okay, and the other my other favorite part of the book is besides the ending is um, the Clyde Brattle van scene. Yeah, those are just two of the most like beautiful, like evocative, funny parts, and like weird and violent. Like the Harold Snow thing is so scary. <laughs> it's yeah. like legitimately he's described like a Stephen King character when he's discovered in that closet. And I was always like, <laughs> that was the point. I was, I was like, I fucking love this book. Um, so getting to write that scene especially for like Tip Sharp who's like this awesome improviser and comedian <laughs> and, and who added lines like you're an asshole yeah just went with like it his yeah and then, and then, and then the Brattle introduction, which is so cool. Um, getting to work on those scenes was like was just so fun. And also, yeah, the pool party, which started off as but a pool party yeah. because it's a pool party in the book, uh, and then became a luau because uh, well, for, Richard so, is such an amazing production designer. He came up with we could do a luau and yeah. with Stephen too, right? And yeah. Eric, yeah, they all kind of got their heads together. And were three like, is the, the three really is for me the moment where it became a series. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we we block shot two and three, so we shot them. Actually, the first scene we shot for the series was the Singe Allegra scene at the diner. Uh, where they go over Felicity's paperwork sure. and he says he loves giraffes. That was day one in June back on series. But two was still, you know, the room went through two with me and made some changes, but yeah. two was basically done when we started the room. So three for me is the moment that the show opens up and pivots. And it opens up not just to other writers and other voices and other contributions, but the style of the show. It's less Rosario Dawson talks to weirdos. We have different POV for the first time. We break her POV. right? And also... I mean, I learned so much from Eva over the course of the season, but you may notice some of the scenes are shorter. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote long, long long-ass scenes, and uh, it turns out when you work on TV for a while, there are good reasons why you don't always do that. Sure. And for me, watching it now especially, it feels lighter, it feels freer, and it feels a lot with a lot of the comedy like the kind of show that we were really excited to make. But it also, then also, it I don't know if it didn't suffer. It it went through the permutations of production in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And the pool party is the biz, biggest example. It was a, it was a pool party, and I I wanted Jake Spivey to arrive in the pool party by cannonballing into the pool and yelling "Spring Break." <laughs> they scouted Albuquerque. They couldn't find the pool that yeah. was right, and they were also like, "No extras want to stand around in water. No actors wants to be in bathing suits." Sure. What if it was a garden party? I was like, okay, all right, fine. Did but, you? But, I mean, when when something small like that comes up, are you like, I can't get it out of my head that it wanted to be a pool, or are you like, sure, whatever? Ask me that party in good. April, May of twenty nineteen, or in August. Okay. If it was August, I'd be like, fine, <laughs> let's 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 get it done. April, May, I was I was upset about it, and so I said, okay, but the thing that has to happen is that Jake has to arrive on a long slip and slide through the party. <laughs> Jay Ferguson will dive bomb shirtless onto a slip and slide with a beer in his hand and slide across the lawn in between the guests yelling spring break. Okay. And this is when Eva's job gets more complicated because she, chief among many people, has to say, oh, what a good idea. Oh, yeah. Great. Oh, That's, this is that go- was your best idea. This is going to be great. <laughs> this is totally going to work in out. In your mind, are you it, like, nobody's, nobody wants to slip and slide? I mean, it's, have you ever been on one? It hurts. It sucks. They're, Nobody they're wants to do painful, it. Have you ever been on a slip and slide? They're a painful no, thing. No, right? No. Yeah, <laughs> Even as brutal. children, we hated them and yeah. we lied and said we liked them because yeah. of the commercial. So they gently, and Richard Bloom, our brilliant production designer, was chief about this, you know, steered us away from that. But then there was a day in prep when everyone was like, well, obviously it's a luau. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned that to Eva in a typical, like, I don't know, they say you want it to be, like, <laughs> I, literally, like, read all texts to Eva from prep. <laughs> in the voice of a petulant teenager. Uh, Judd Nelson <laughs> They're saying it's going to be a luau. Didn't we already have the baby Elvis on the board at the pool party? Like, that was yes. the thing. We already had that. That was all you. I mean, the, the kid Elvis who is not impersonating young Elvis, but is impersonating young, it was young kid impersonating fat old Elvis. <laughs> our county's youngest old Elvis. I had just been to Graceland. That was all Eva. So the pieces were there and it just wanted to be a luau. And then we end up with this scene where everyone looks amazing and lays around their necks. But I also wanted to say that, like, coming into the season, um, so in the, in the book, uh, Captain Gene Colder, Brian Garrity's character, refers to a wife, the scene that you saw last week in 102, where he says, I'm married to a bitch, blah, blah, blah. That's verbatim from the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, this is fun. But, but the wife doesn't exist on the page. She is essentially like, like Bertha and Jane Eyre. She's mm-hmm. just like the crazy person in the attic that Gotta fuels say, the— Never read Jane Eyre. And but wow, also we're really coming huge clean spoiler in this. for me then. She's in an insane <laughs> she's been put in an insane asylum for being crazy, which is a thing that happened also in yes. Fourth Durango with a woman. Yes, that's a classic it, Ross Thomas thing. Yeah. Crazy lady, yeah, yeah. crazy lady, don't worry about that it. That happened a lot more with guys in the 60s and 70s. It was something it was it, it was on the table. Yeah. Well, that's something I like just in general about pulp and noir guys when they're pumping out a lot of 
books very quickly. Yeah. You can just see a map of their brain right. and the things that they care about. And They'll one just, of them is like, I got to put this woman somewhere. It's, or they have like a super cool ex who's just there to do exposition with them. Oh, yeah. And they're just like, you're great. You know, I've moved on, but not really because you're pretty awesome. And just like, why don't you tell me all about this case? Yeah. And then I'll see you later. Yeah. That's great. So I knew that that we wanted Mrs. Colder to be a character. And, and I came in being like, her name's going to be Lucretia Colder and she's going to cause trouble because she's not unhinged and off the reservation we want to make her a real person sure. and give her a, 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 an arc yeah because that's one of the things you can do if you're updating the story and taking advantage of the current whatever so that's what we wanted to do and i don't know if it was more than that it's early on i think we decided that we wanted her to be kind of a femme fatale well because there isn't one there's like we the, there's a, no classic femme fatale right, in the right. in the book right. in the in the show right jake it, is kind of the femme fatale yeah. in that he plays that yes. role yeah so so I think that Haley, who we had all the characters who were in the pilot up on the board and then like picked their photos, actual photos. And then Haley, we mentioned earlier, drew caricatures of people we oh, haven't wow. cast yet. And so the one for Raytech before we cast Kim Dickens was just, I believe it was a cowboy hat and two six shooters and boots. Mm. And uh, for Lucretia, it was cat's eye glasses and like a cigarette case. Yeah. But I, I fully, I mean, Christine Woods, who's a genius and brilliant addition to the show, who has great stuff coming up, is part of it. But I feel like Lucretia is Eva's character. Oh, thank you. She's one of my two favorite characters, and I can't say who the other one is because it'll <laughs> be a spoiler. But yes, she's very, very dear to my heart, Lucretia Colder. She's a really fun, fun character. And that is the fun thing about that we were able to crack open with the book is, you know, when you call a woman crazy, uh, she's usually pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right. she, that, that's someone I want to know. If someone's, everyone's like, oh, she's crazy. She's a crazy bitch. It's like, ooh, what's up with this lady? Right. She must be very smart <laughs> or or challenging in some way. So that was a fun uh, if this, then what kind of exercise. Like, why would she be crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask about two different things. One is specifically about writing for characters and oh, versus yeah. writing for actors. Because obviously Alan Cummings' arrival at the end of the episode mm-hmm. is one of those temperature changing, you know, the thermostat goes up a little bit. Yeah. How did the writing for that character obviously Clyde's in the book, but change once you get somebody as distinctive as Alan playing the part. Well, um, I started writing speeches that yeah, were too long. <laughs> Andy got really excited writing <laughs> speeches. <laughs> um, I will say that I pulled most of that scene directly from the book. Okay, like the uh, most of his lines of dialogue. I once I really because I I wrote a version of it and I texted you. I went back to the book and I was like, oh, everything he says in this scene is like much cooler than what I wrote. Yeah. So I started actually lifting dialogue and, from the book. And Alan wasn't cast until we were writing episode like eight. Yeah, we I had think. a different. He, he, was, he was cast later. We had the, we had a, a vision of him, but. It, we didn't know who he was. Yet. Okay, definitely yes. Once we had Alan coming, um, and we and there were some episodes yet to be written, and in some later episodes, you'll definitely see like some really uh, great Greenwald flourishes that are <laughs> that are for for the for the actor. For been, sure. I'm very familiar with Greenwald flourishes. <laughs> it's been a while. Because um, Clyde, actually, to me, in the it's been a minute since I read the book. I went through it a little bit before the show started, or before wait, right when it got announced. But cl- for some reason, Clyde always was like an Enron guy to me. Mm. He was like more of a because then that's what's so awesome about Alan playing him is because it just gives you a completely different angle on this like dandy gentleman arms he's dealer, a Manafort, more yeah, of a right, Paul Manafort right. yeah, he's, than a he, Roger Stone. Yeah, he, he's a, he's this sort of efficient bad guy basically yeah. who yeah. just floats in and out. And then what we wanted to do was find a way to make him more interesting and not just another person in a suit, although he really has great suits. He does. And what where they came from was, you know, we were delving more into the emotional lives of our leads, of Allegra and Jake. A lot of it had to do with parents and parenting and modeling and how they didn't have any. And Jake wearing the clothes that he does, living in the house that he does, having the giraffes that he has, what is he trying to be? Who Who is he modeling this all on? Mm-hmm. So it became pretty clear that if everything he does is sort of tacky and try hard, who is he, who's effortless? So steering yeah. into that patrician, that kind of like, you know, East Coast waspy just wears like was born wearing khakis kind of thing. Yeah, that yeah. we wanted to do. And so we we wrote the character more in that direction to be effortless at all the things that are take a great deal of effort for Jake and creating a bad dad scenario. And so then physically, it just became so much more interesting once we knew we'd have someone who is just as lithe and and unsettling. Yeah, as Alan can be uh, and as dapper up against Jay Ferguson, who's just. You know, grade A Id. American steak, right. <laughs> shirt untucked. Eva, I also wanted to ask you a little about Allegra because this is oh please. The real, I, I thought it was such a cool Allegra episode, partially because in the first two you could essentially be, say like she's concussed. You know, yeah. I mean, both <laughs> literally like medically concussed from multiple car bombs, but or from that car bomb at the end of the episode, but also 
is obviously like processing being back, what she's going through, what's happened so far. And this is the episode where you actually get to see her doing what she does. Yeah. Um, and being kind of on the job, but also get to see why being on the job is perhaps a coping mechanism for other parts of her life. And I was curious about how you guys talked about Allegra and what needed to happen in episode three to show like a different side of her or if or if you guys talked about that at all. Well, we did talk about it. And I think an active word for Allegra in the third episode is she's pissed. Yeah. She's angry. She's constantly, ever since she came to town, all of her boundaries have been violated, whether it's by people choking killing her, her sister, yeah. choking her out. Trying, I think cho- the choking her out and like this is like— the second time someone's just appeared in her hotel room yes. after uh, the senator. Like, this just, just keeps happening. Try, try the double day, maybe. <laughs> she's got <laughs> nowhere safe. So it's, tree. she's got this simmering, look, and she knows Jake set her up. And so she's entering with so much but just rage mm-hmm. that she actually, but she's doing her job. So she can't be angry and she can't freak out and she can't like, uh, she can't yell. So I think that it, it, over the course of the episode, we always talked about is that she starts off, you know, with this furious in the morning because someone broke in again and she hides the key. And that was also your idea, I believe. That was Brian. That oh, was that entirely was Brian, Brian, Brian Brown. The key thing? Yeah, that was 100% Brian Brown flourish. Um, but thank you for thinking it was me because I, I like it a lot. <laughs> um, and then she goes, she confronts Jake at the pool party. And then, you know, she has this really great emotional moment when she finally finds, she kind of angers her way through the tamale shop and into, and I love the way Steven shot that. I love that too. Yeah. Um, with the and, and by the way, we wrote across. in the script a, a secret A-frame apartment above a tamale shop and uh, Richard, along with our locations team. And we were like, this also has to have a pool. But they, <laughs> So they, they said no pool, but they literally found a secret A-frame behind a Mexican restaurant no, on a highway in Albuquerque. That was yeah, unreal. Man, Albuquerque's awesome looking. Um, it's just so full of cool places. Uh, and, oh, yeah, so anyway, uh, the idea is that the when she finally gets Harold Snow tied to that chair, yeah. that's why she's so terrifying. Right. Because she finally, it's like the fourth violation in a row, he's in the closet. He's in the sister's apartment. Mm-hmm. There's no, even her, she can't even have her emotionally safe moment. It's like, it, seeing her sister's apartment, she was right. And finding this creep behind the clothes, it's it's so infuriating. And in the book, it, there it's a very scary scene. Yeah. The interrogation in the book is very scary. It is really like... Um, the the female singe character gets scared of Dill. But then she gets turned on and wants to sleep with him. Yeah, but she is scared. She's like, I didn't like Which I didn't is the like first either. step of being committed. Yes. That's going to happen next. <laughs> so that's, I think that it's it's fun. I mean, Rosario is such an amazing actress and getting, watching her like simmer under the surface is really fun for me. Yeah. Um, and then also when she leaves, she's like jacked up. And my favorite moment of the whole episode, well, my second favorite moment, my first favorite moment is the drones. But the second favorite <laughs> moment is when he's like, She's like, let's let's hit the slush pit, and he's like, yeah, you know, there's a funeral tomorrow, yeah. and she's like, oh. In great. the original draft, I think it was whose funeral. <laughs> like she was so jacked up. We she had a moment. She was like, who? What are you talking? What are you about? talking? He's like Felicity's funeral. Yeah, he, and they were like, that's a little too. Like, I like, know, but I feel but the, I feel like it's we, a great the, moment. We forgot too. Like what? What? Few, there's yeah. You still have to do death stuff, even when the world. It's also good down. for time. Like you can to kind of hear like, oh, okay, so it's been a few days or, mm-hmm. or a day or two. E- each episode from this point on is basically a day. The for the pilots three three days. And then every other episode is essentially a day. Okay. Yeah. Um, going forward, and trying to think what other what other. Well, keep... can I ask? Can we do oh, drones? Yeah, we can talk drones. Oh yeah. Is that? Did you go full Avatar there? Did you Did you get the LED screens? Can we you... finished the VFX shots for that last. No, well, this will be. We're airing this in a week, so two weeks ago. Okay. This like is ten also... days before the ep- well, about eight days before the episode was available on demand, we finished the last VFX shot. Okay. Andy had like five moments outside of the book that he wanted in the series that he told me when I met to work on the show and one of them was the drones in the warehouse. Well, I don't know if you know this, Andy cares very deeply about AI. <laughs> I <laughs> mean like Teddy, Teddy and I'm, just, I'm passionate about the rights of the unborn. <laughs> and it, but in the unborn meaning like Created like with with a circuitry. Are yeah. you worried about going that sending the drones to the flesh fair where they'll be tortured <laughs> by? Uh, can we talk about the, the flesh fair? I'm sorry. Is that this is from the the, the Spielberg AI? I'm doing oh deep yeah. AI. Never actually yeah. saw it. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I well, do think you missed out. You don't want it to. I don't you care don't about it. Sully, your AI feelings. Side note, and I've said this publicly before. I think Eva's the most interesting person I've ever met. No. And so when she says casually flesh, flesh fair. fair, I'm like, she probably went there. <laughs> she I probably to... took a trip. I would go to a flesh to fair the flesh and watch fair. robots yeah. get tortured that it's, tomorrow. It's, Have you told me it was just like down 
and like down. And I'd be like, I'd the be tickets like, yeah. are only seven hundred fifty dollars each. She'd be like, give me four so I can invite friends I haven't made yet. The couple on StubHub. Yeah, I got us off. I got us off. J- just to say, yeah, I wanted one of the notes that we had early on when we were pitching the show was when is this show? Because we've modernized it, but we're also mm-hmm. in a town that is very dependent on yeah. a newspaper and there's a lot of manila folders and old media. And I, I like that about it. I like that the show set in a fictional imagination place where anything, we, we it's kind of their, their details from a, a bunch of different eras that don't limit us to any. And so I wanted something that if we had started to get lulled into thinking that this sure. was an old-timey story, that it's not. Yeah, I mean, even the references something... to Syria and stuff like that, I thought were like not dependent on current events, but obviously right. fixed in time. Yeah, in the book, of course, Jake and Brad a lot of history in Vietnam. So, I, yeah, I wanted her to be surprised by and overwhelmed by a couple dozen drones. So when you guys Technology. shot that scene, is it like Rosario, look up? There's yes. lights, right? So they okay. shot that scene until 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was on a plane home <laughs> to see my family. It's, it's I was not there creepy. because, as Layla can attest, once the clock turned 11, I liked it. Layla was there. She was observing for me. That's like the most <laughs> uh, incredible location, too. Yeah. The we, rail yard in and, Albuquerque. And we go back there a lot. Over the yeah, season. and it's in. Once you see it, it's in everything. Anything shot <laughs> in Albuquerque has a rail yard in it because it's just such a shocking building. It's but, so cool. Yeah, is that like where like has Jesse Pinkman been tortured there? For or sure, yeah. a million percent. Yeah, yeah. but Daybreak but, on Netflix, they were holding a bunch of kids there in cages. <laughs> God. <laughs> but so to, to your question though, that was a crazy day. It was Alan's first day shooting, and we shot the scene with him and Rosario uh-huh. in the van, and that was we did that poor man's process, which Layla would be impressed that I know it means that guess what? It wasn't driving. They were just I flashing bet. lights and yes. bumping the bumping the bumper. It's I the thought that he of, was able to make those vodka tonics or whatever rather smoothly. He was. Yeah. It was. It was not a bumpy patch. And also— Also, oh, can I say one more thing? Yeah. The lavender light so inside great. of that that is always in that uh, in that RV and comes back later. It's Zach Galler chose that as, as Brattle's color. And I it just so eerie and cool. And, and the introduction of Brattle's theme music. Um, oh, yeah. Which is called We're Being Hunted by— our friend Giancarlo, who's mm-hmm. the composer, which That's is great. introduced That's for the cool. first time there. Anyway, so we filmed that scene in the van, and then Alan cleared out and flew off to London or something because he was flying in and out a lot. And then, yeah, literally that was the scene was until 3 in the morning getting a number of angles. I think we had one drone there or two as reference. Um, if you need more, I got I got a couple drones. Well, you have, they, you we got text, drones? Yeah. I you got. could draw in a lot of them. So it was a very long and involved yeah. VFX process because – you know, and it's kind of amazing. Like the, the I, my favorite shot in there that Stephen got was, you know, where they are rising and kind of floating and swarming around her mm-hmm. head, and the camera's turning. She was looking at nothing, right? And there was no red light dancing on her hair. I mean, that's all. Make, it just makes you respect Thanos that much more. That's right. You know those performances. It's it's, <laughs> it's just... actually each drone was played by Alan Cumming wearing a ping pong ball suit. <laughs> People don't know that about him, but he is willing to yeah to to, to go the extra. Padme. Anything else you want? You guys wanted to say about three? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Cool uh, trivia. A lot of lot emotional of, takeaways. A lot of Lalo in there. We get to see yeah, the desert in a big way. Lalo. Yeah, uh, that was this was like the first time we used um our awesome um consultant mm-hmm. for border patrols. Yeah, Francisco Cantu. Yeah. Oh, a brilliant wow. writer. He wrote a brilliant book called The Line Becomes a River, um, which is his memoir as of being a graduate student studying the border of the United States and Mexico, being a Mexican-American person, and then joining the Border Patrol himself to find out what it would mean. And it's a brilliant memoir, and it inspired the character of Lalo, who is not in the book, who, you know, was in the pilot, but begins to play a bigger role here. And so it was great to have Paco as a consultant for that. And he'd come in and give us, like, very interesting details about just the the kind of stuff you would see on the border or what the Border Patrol station was like. Yeah. Who worked there? Like, what kind of... uh, yeah, just really like how it would vivid be appointed, detail. how many people would be there, and stuff like that. And, and yeah. just just scenes that we unfortunately weren't able to do because of timing, but scenes that were inspired by his experience in book, like in his book, like when he would be filling out paperwork and someone who had been detained, a migrant who had been detained, would come up to him and speak in Spanish, and because he recognized that he would understand him and say like, "I'll I'll sweep up here. Can I help?" <laughs> and he couldn't help, and so that kind of frustration is baked into the character, even though we couldn't always do scenes like that. Yeah, that was really cool to have him in the room. That's awesome. Yeah. I like the so I mean I think that one the last thing I'll say is just the one of the cool things about the way that you guys have done I wouldn't say cliffhangers is more like the cliffhangers are like real what the fuck moments. Mm. So it's not like is you going to get out of here in time before the bomb goes off? It's more just like wait. Did the entire world of the show just kind of change a yeah. little bit and how do you I just wanted to know if you guys could talk for a minute about writing those that last page 
what's the thing that you leave people with and like how, oh, yeah. how much of a discussion is goes into that? I feel like that. Yeah, you can say that for the first three for sure. And yeah, and, and a lot of the episodes have these like kind of weird turns at the end where it just opens a new door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a, how can you open a door into a, the next episode? Where I think all of them. Yeah. You know, I think it was really something that we we talked a lot about and was really important to me that again people's time is pretty sacred and so you kind of got to give them a reason to care and you Mm want to hit it hard in the beginning and do sort of we wanted to do interesting surprising opens before the title card so like this one suddenly you're in Lalo's world and we haven't spent time with him before Mm -hmm. and we want to end with people wanting more but but to your point Chris like it, I don't see much value in a cliffhanger where, like, is she going to die? Yeah, if there's always someone no, walking up behind she's, Allegra. You're she's in the rest no, of the right, Schmuckbait. Yeah. Right. That's, a, that's a word I learned from Eva yeah. as well. <laughs> what is it? Schmuckbait. You know what else she taught me? And, and weirdly, what's, what's the, give me the, what's like, the, you're, you're baiting schmucks. It's like, it's living like, oh, is Allegra going to die right. in the second episode? So or? every uh, season of 24 after, like, season three. Right? <laughs> yeah, Unless you you're ready to go. For the first two seasons, I was like, is he going to die? Holy shit. But also, is Sean Bean going to really die in Game of Thrones? No fucking way. This is another Thing that Eva taught me, and weirdly, she only taught it to me when I was rewriting the finale. But um, put the important stuff in scenes at the beginning and end of the scene. <laughs> That's the Motown rule, man. You got to put your singles up front. Yeah. So you know that really came in handy when I was rewriting ten. Thanks a lot, by the way, for the rest <laughs> of them. I was like, this should be the last line of the show, and you're like, oh, that, oh yeah. yeah. There's a scene in the end. I mean, this is like we, we, you know, I I think that you'll be on this podcast again, hopefully, even not to talk about Never. the show, but. I cannot say how invaluable Eva was about these things throughout the entire process. Up to, but a great example of it is, Eva, here, look at the last scene I wrote for the most important characters and the most important moment and episode of the show. Is it good? And she'd be like, yes, it's good. But this line hidden in the 20 other lines, yeah. that's the best line. Right. So you should really write the scene around that. And I was like, oh, yeah. It's called, it's called <laughs> editing. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the good line. Aww. I'll do that going forward. Well, that's a good place to end the pod. Uh, Eva, thank you so much for coming by. Can I make a plug? Absolutely. March 1st, I wrote on Dispatches from Elsewhere also awesome. on AMC. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's, it's Siegel. Yeah. Jason Siegel, Richard E. Grant, Andre 3000. Shot in Philly. Shot in Philly. Did you go to Philly for that? No, it was concurrent with Briar Patch, oh. but I wrote on that the year before. And so uh, watch that as Absolutely. well while you're watching watch Briar Patch because Briar Patch just keeps getting better and better. Which part of your, for, again, most interesting person alive, which parts of yourself do you think were best applied to Dispatches? Like what, what, what did you bring to it's that? It's about immersive theater. There it is. <laughs> Get yourself someone who knows immersive theater um, it's if you great. want to be successful. Yeah, in this but it's business. it's it's also a good show, and um, all the rest of Briar Patch guys, it's it, it's a wild ride. But Dispatches has a hundred percent more members of Outcast than. <laughs> our don't show sell does. yourself short. I mean, we have Mel Rodriguez. Yeah, and Sally Field. Uh, no, we don't have Sally Field. Oh, we have Sally Field. Whose it's- team are you on? <laughs> <laughs> team Sally. Uh, Eva, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, on the thanks, watch. guys. This is a pleasure. Thanks, pal.